verse 13 is where we're at, and we're going to pray tonight. Lord Jesus, uh, just, Lord, we love your word, God, and uh, we love that you've given it to us, you've revealed yourself to us, and you've written it down so that uh, you can't be changed, uh, Lord, the truth isn't relative to whatever situation Lord, we can come to the authority, we can come to the standard, the canon of the writ, Lord. And, uh, and so, Lord, we're thankful that you've given that so that we can know who you are, God. And, um, and we can know in truth. And, Lord, as you point us towards things through um, understanding the redemption in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would just empower us to live these things out, Lord. Uh, no doubt, many of these things are lacking in our church, in our personal lives. We pray that you would just um, motivate us and, and provide just uh, power and propulsion behind just living this, God. This is not easy stuff, Lord. This is something that uh, we need the Holy Spirit's power to do. And so uh, speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit tonight. And, uh, Lord, just let no eye be on a man, Lord. Um, get eyes off of me and let them be on you, God. Because you are better than Rory. You are better than anything uh, that this world could throw or offer at us, even the, in the religious spectrum. And so, Lord, we want to just get our eyes on you, God. So do that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. You might have noticed uh, in the last couple weeks how the book of Hebrews starts out like a lecture and it'll end like a letter. Uh, we're going to have tonight some very practical outworkings of love in the social realm, love in the family of faith, you know, uh, and in that hands-on experience is very important. You know, you can read how to ride a bike or you can go get a bike, hop on it, fall over a couple times, but pretty soon you're riding. And uh, in coaching soccer recently, you know, a couple training little things that I had to do, you know, they're like, okay, for six-year-olds, you've got to say what they need to do, and then you got to show what they need to do, and then you need to have them do what you're telling them to do. Say, show, do, right? And, uh, and they say, you know, these six-year-olds, they've got like a five-minute attention span, you know, and they're in here with us tonight, so pray. <laughs> You're paying attention, right, Russell? Okay. You know, and it's the same with us, right? We can say it, say it, say it, and you can get the knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Uh, but then we show how to do it. And, you know, a, a, a flock is only going to go so far as their shepherd takes them. And so as leaders, we want to lead by example in these areas. And then we do it together. We do these things together. Uh, in this chapter, we have a whole lot of ethical terms framed we have a lot of morality given out, but we have application of how to do them within the family of faith. And so, uh, you know, I think of how the Amish have all of their values and they pass them down, uh, not because of head knowledge, but because, you know, children are living it all out right in this tradition, right there with the families. And so that's something that we do within community within the gathering of ourselves together, within being together, not just on Sundays, but every day. 
Every day we're together. I'm blessed with, you know, what I do, because I'm with many of you. Every day I see you. Every day I brush with you. Every day we pray to you. know, there's one of us, we're always praying together. We're always doing something nearly every day. And so as Aaron taught Hebrews chapter 12 last night, we just want to hop back to chapter 12 and look at this last couple verses here, where it says in Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Or maybe just close your eyes for a second. Listen to the J.B. Phillips paraphrase. Since then, we've been given a kingdom that is unshakable. Let us serve God with thankfulness in the ways which please him, but always with reverence and holy fear. And so the therefore in the scriptures cause us, knowing that we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the therefores, uh, let us move on to practical outworking of that. Let us serve him faithfully. What does it look like to keep on, keeping on with a thankful heart that pleases God? Well, the answer, verse one, let brotherly love continue. How do we serve God with faithfulness in response to what he's given us, to what he's done for us, giving us an unshakable kingdom? Well, we let our brotherly love continue. Or as some translation puts it, keep on loving each other. Let brotherly love, it's the word Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia, which in America, we've got the city of brotherly love. Phileo means love and Delphos means um, brotherly. And so uh, this, let the brotherly love, let Philadelphia continue. These principles are founded on all of chapters 1 through 12. It's not a list of regulations where when men do it, then they'll be right before God. But rather, because men have been made right with God by grace through faith, they now will live out a life of faith that will show that they've been justified in the sight of God. They've already been made right. All of these principles do not create a life, but they reveal a life of faith. Within family, within living in community, let love continue. Jesus says on the Sermon of the Mount that in the last days, lawlessness will abound And the love of many will grow cold. Within the church, you'll begin to see people being distracted and not loving each other. The love of many is going to grow cold. Romans chapter 12 verse 10 tells us, us, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. There's a lot there in Romans 12.10. Kindly affectionate to one another. Imagine that. What does that look like? All right. Brotherly love. Philadelphia. What's that look like? Giving preference to one another, saying, I prefer you. No, I prefer you. No, I prefer you. We'll never get anything done around here because we prefer each other. Let brotherly love continue. You know, that doesn't mean that we are never pain in each other's necks. But it means that we love each other in spite of it. 
Even though we're going to be, you know, we're going to need to be bearing with each other. We're going to need to be forgiving each other. We're going to need to be pouring out love to one another. Yeah, you know, you bug me and you drive me nuts. And I'm sure I bug you and drive you nuts. I'm sure you wanted to throw in the towel with me a long time ago. But you know what? Forget all that. I love you. And you love me. And that moves us. That causes us to grow. Sinclair Ferguson says, whenever we find ourselves attaching importance to another person's possessions or backgrounds or their schooling or even their accent as the basis of fellowship, then we are out of step with the example of Christ and such wrongful attitudes need to be dealt with at the foot of the cross. When we come to the foot of the cross, we're given perspective Who did Jesus love? Jesus loved the whole world. And so he laid his life down. It's what we do to one another. 2 Peter 1.5 says that we need to add diligence or diligently add to our faith virtue. Virtue in our loving one another. And so also, not only is our brotherly love to continue, but Secondly, in verse 2, within this community of faith and love outworking, there needs to be the entertaining of strangers. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Hello, my ragtime gal. Okay, not that type of entertaining. I have no idea. The Holy Spirit brought it out and then took it away. We need to be entertaining strangers, or the word means being hospitable. To strangers. And I love how verse 2 starts, and the next couple of verses are going to start the same way, saying, Do not forget. Why do you think he says, Do not forget? Because we always forget, right? We, so we need to be reminded. I've taught on this before, and praise God, we're here again. Do not forget to entertain strangers. Julian wrote that the enemies of Christianity themselves have noticed this practice of virtue among Christians. Those that are enemies, those that are critics, but you know what? They sure are hospitable. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Now, entertaining strangers or showing hospitality is not just having a few friends over and cooking up some burgers and some fries. It's much more than that. In fact, it says here that you're to be hospitable to strangers. Now, that's something we just don't do. Do we? Oh, do you know them? Have you done a background check on them? You know? We've had a man living with us a few months this year, probably about by the, end it's, by the time it's over, probably like five, six months this year. Lives in our basement. Awesome man of God, Christian guy. Didn't know him. And... Uh, Ryan Couch's father-in-law said, hey, you got a room for him. He's working on Apple. He's working. He needs a place. And the Lord said, that's you, Roy. That's for you. And, uh, and so we had him come in. He's an awesome brother. Didn't know him. Now I know him. But man, the looks that I got. What are you? What have you? What the? This is not biblical. <laughs> this is not okay. Strangers, people. Strangers. People we don't know and nobody else knows them. All right? Now, strangers are a little different these days. You know, if you see a hitchhiker with a couple of pistolas and a machete on his back, keep going, okay? Keep going. Call the police. Let them give him a ride. 
But these are people that they come into our building. They know zero names. They know zero faces. They know zero places. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? I've been there. I moved 13 times before I graduated high school. That is a tough, awkward, scary place to be. And people, this is the Wednesday night crowd, so can I say this? When people come through this door, let's maul them. (laughs) Maul them with love. Give them a brotherly kiss on the cheek. It's cool. All right? Shelby hugged me for the first time ever tonight. First time ever. I haven't seen him in two weeks. I'm like, hey, buddy, what's happening? He's all, bring it in. Okay, it was, it was a little distant hug from Shelby. I mean, it's like he read ahead tonight in our study. But that's on us to, to here's some new people. Don't worry, we won't kiss you. Okay. Well, I won't. But Tambone, I mean, you never know what she'll do. When people come in here and it's their first time, be hospitable. Don't assume that somebody else is going to do it. Because somebody else is assuming that somebody else is going to do it. And if that happens, it'll never get done. Be hospitable. Entertain strangers. How many strangers have you had to your house lately? Throw out a number. (laughs) Probably rhymes with Nero or... Something like that. <laughs> People moving from place to place in the, in, the, in the text of the scripture, and they didn't have anywhere to stay. It was a lot different than it is now, but it's, it's very similar. In fact, can I throw something out there? Got a call from my sister. There's some gals from Calvary Corvallis coming over uh, this weekend to play Bible trivia. People do that, and they need a place to stay. So throwing that out there, I don't know their names. They love Jesus. Anybody got a room? Ours is full of a strange man downstairs trying to figure out (laughs) what to do with him. Oh, wait, no. Okay. Inviting people over for dinner. And I went uh, to Climate Falls this weekend. There was a tri-tip dinner in the middle of one of the days. And uh, I'm walking over to my table. My wife's there and a couple friends. And there was a girl sitting all by herself at this table over here. And I knew that she wasn't married and she didn't have kids and she was at the Gospel Family series, right? And I'm like, come on over and sit with us. You know, and she's like, oh, you know, no, no. so I sat with her and I invited a couple guys around, let's sit and let's talk with her. And she just started bawling. About halfway through our meal, she just started bawling. She's I've gone here for so long, no one can remember my name. It was a hard name. I asked her twice, I couldn't remember it. Raquela Twitty? Okay. And she just was bawling. I'm crying. I'm so sorry. I'm like, I'm crying too. Okay. And, and I was just like, man, that is a lesson. That is a lesson. She was blessed that I was like, I'll sit with you. I don't know. And a little strange me sitting with the girl. But, you know, whatever. It was cool. But let's look for that. Let's look for that. Let's invite people over for dinner. Be that one to do that. Man, I went to Calvary Chapel and 10 people invited me to dinner. I had to make it on a calendar so that I could spread it all out. You know, the Salmons, when they first visited here, Don and Jan Smith invited them out to dinner the first day they were here. And they said, that's why we started coming to the church. And now Don and Jan aren't here. What? Oh, they just don't go to church anymore. That's, that's great. One man said, we're in rare form tonight, aren't we? One man said something way better than I'd ever said tonight. 
If love doesn't issue in a hospitable home, love hasn't begun to work. We surely must understand that Christian homes are vital factors in our generation for reaching non-Christians and for encouraging one another. Flip over to 3 John, just to the right a little bit. 3 John, uh, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2, 3 John. 3 John, verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. The end of this verse tells us that in entertaining strangers, by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Angels seem to travel incognito in the scriptures. We see that uh, in the book of Genesis quite a few times. Abraham and Sarah entertained angels. In fact, one, I believe, was uh, Christophany, Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, You have um, angels going and visiting Lot and trying to get him out of Sodom. And uh, and there was a a violent altercation with a mob there as these uh, homosexuals thought these angels were actually men and they wanted them. In Judges, Manoah and his wife speak to an angel, which I also believe to be a Christophany. And they were hospitable towards them. They were cooking food. How interesting. How many times have we perhaps served somebody and, and showed hospitality and it was actually an angel? Romans chapter 12 verse 13 says that we should be distributing to the needs of the saints and we should be given over to hospitality. The third way that we show love in the social realm is love shows in our family by remembering the prisoners. Verse 3 tells us, remember, remember the prisoners as if chained there with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. This is a call to empathize with prisoners, even Not only the persecuted church, which we did last Thursday at the courthouse, praying for the persecuted church, praying for Saeed, remembering him in prayer, but prisoners here, people that did stupid stuff, and they're in jail for it. We think, man, what if I was in prison? What if I was in jail? What would I like? Man, I'd love a card. I'd love a letter. Someone's thinking of me. You know, I'd love a cake with a file in it, you know? Hey, love a Diet Coke. Get under the burden to help this individual. Man, if the Lord would open up our body to do a prison ministry, you know, uh, to Madras or to uh, the jail here, we probably have about three people a year from our church go to jail in this town. And that people would just have that heart like, man, this guy's probably feeling condemned by the enemy right now, feeling like a total screw up. What if someone just showed up and just loved him? Just encouraged them. Just spoke truth into their life, but just loved them and was there for them. How beautiful would that be? What about prisoners who are in the geriatric wards? Can't get out of there. They're old, so they have to stay there. 
What about people that are prisoners of their own bodies or mentally ill? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9-17, through 17, we read of the abandoned apostle. Paul said, be diligent to come to me quickly. He was in a prison in Rome. He says, Demas forsook me. He loved this present world. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, bring him to me to jail. He's useful for me in the ministry. Bring the coat or the cloak that I left. And the books, especially the parchments. He goes on to say in verse 16 of 2 Timothy 4, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully. Notice it says that we're to remember the prisoners as if we're chained there with them because we're all members of one body. Have you caught that yet in this church? That it's not just about you and you can't just be an individual Christian, but if you're a Christian, you're to be part of a local body, a body whose head is Christ and has many members and each one of us is that member. And 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that if one member suffers, the rest suffer with it. If a rib is cracked, if a, you know, eyeball hurts, whatever it might be, man, the rest does its part to help and to assist and to aid. And oh, and that's what happens. When one member is hurting, we all hurt. One member cries, man, I'm crying right there with you. I'm a living tear duct. It's in my genes. How often do we neglect to pray for the persecuted church? Knowing that Saeed, man, he's... He's part of this. I mean, we don't know him well. He's more like a, a toenail or something to this local church. But man, we need a toenail, don't we? Man, where's my toenail? I'm always thinking about it. We're praying for Saeed. Don't ever tell Nagma that that's the body part that I called him. Perhaps the better question would be, how often do we pray for the persecuted church? One lady at the prayer meeting last week uh, at the courthouse said, man, I could just see this happening once a month. And every month at the anniversary of Saeed's arrest, we would pray for the persecuted church worldwide and, and get updates on around the world and be praying. And I love Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 16, because Peter was kept in prison. And it says, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out and put him to death, behold, an angel stood by him in prison, woke him up, unshackled him, took him out. Peter thought it was a dream the whole time. The guards didn't see him. The gates opened on their own accord. He went out. The angel disappeared. Peter, then he really thought it was a dream. And then he goes to Rhoda's house and it says that there was a prayer meeting going on there. And he knocks on the door and Rhoda opens the little slot. She's like, <laughs> Peter's at the door. Oh, it's probably his ghost or something or, you know, or an angel. Oh, okay. Forget it then. They open it up and they come in and they rejoice. Man, I believe that last week, uh, some big things happened. In fact, it was right, was it the day of the prayer meeting Thursday for Saeed that President Obama called the president of Iran and called for the, um, for the freedom of Saeed. So big things are going on when we pray. The fourth way that love works its way out in the family of faith is that there will be purity in marriage. Purity in marriage. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
Perhaps your translation says that marriage is precious in all. Marriage is precious. Within the right environment, soil is beautiful and it brings forth life. But if you take that rich soil inside and place it on your mom's new white sofa, you no longer have soil but dirt. It's dirt. It's in its wrong area. You know, it doesn't belong in that sphere. You got to vacuum it out. You got to wash it out. Get it out. Sometimes you can never get rid of the stain. Neil Armstrong said many words when he set foot on the moon. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But Neil also made some statements while he was on the moon. As a matter of fact, just before he re-entered the lunar module for the very first time, Armstrong made a mysterious statement. He said, good luck, Mr. Gorski. Anybody remember that? Don, you remember that? You do? Good luck, Mr. Gorski. Of course, this set off a flurry of activity Within NASA, what is this statement? There was so much speculation. Perhaps there was some language going on to the Russians and uh, a hidden message or something like that. They were trying to figure it out and interpret this statement. Perhaps a rival Russian cosmonaut was you know, being told off or something like that. A quick check of the records revealed there was nobody named Mr. Gorsky on the Russian astronaut program. And after years of probing, Neil never spoke up until later on in his life, just before he died, because Mr. Gorsky had died. So he felt free to share who Mr. Gorsky was. It seems that when Neil and his brother were little boys, they were playing baseball, and the baseball went over the fence and landed right at the foot of uh, his next-door neighbor's room, bedroom. And, and his next-door neighbor's name was Mr. Gorsky. And as Neil went over and he got the baseball... He heard Mrs. Gorski shouting at her husband, Romance? It's romance you want? You'll get romance when the kid next door walks on the moon. <laughs> and so Neil Armstrong said, Good luck, Mr. Gorski. It's about time Mr. and Mrs. Gorski got it together. Sex within marriage is honorable, it's honorable within marriage. There's no guilt, there's no shame within the marriage bed. But sex is God-given, therefore it must be God-governed. It is a sovereign design of the Lord God, and He says who gets to partake and who doesn't. Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 20 say, Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets... Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? What does the language say of, of sexual immorality or adultery? That the people involved are immoral. They're seducing one another. They're taking what the fountain that should be for them and their spouse. And they're spreading it out on the street. And verse 4 tells us that there's certain judgment for that. Certain judgment. Do not be deceived. We just went through it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is such deceit, man you got to pray for me in the Rogers home. 
Pray for me in Klamath Falls as I am sharing the gospel. And there's just, it's just sexual immorality all around. And it's, oh, we love Jesus. We're going to see grandma in heaven. It's like you are practicing it and you won't repent of it. Don't be deceived. Or Ephesians says, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's empty words to say, oh, we're married in our heart. Or it's just easier and better if we just don't get married. We get better insurance coverage and this and that. You're lying. You're being lied to. You're being deceived. And you will be judged and you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. We've done a lot of teachings on that recently. So for more on that, get online. A couple weeks ago, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. Men's Health magazine said, Monogamy may not sound like much fun, certainly not in comparison to its alternative. Monogamy sounds an awful lot like monotony, doesn't it? Or monopoly. Do I hear a mahogany? <clears throat> and it goes on to say, Yet we do not relate monogamy to endless tedium, a board game, or a great aunt's dining table. True happiness, the deep sustaining contentment we seek, lies somewhere down monogamy road. And that's from the Gentiles. Yet the church, they go in another direction so often. Scientists on a CNN article recently, scientists were asking, where did this tendency to form lasting relationships with just one person come from? Two studies published this week addressed the question of why social monogamy evolved in some mammals. But they don't agree on the answer. One says dad sticks around to protect their kids from being killed. The other says it's because of resource distribution and the female diet. Where do we get monogamy? From the sovereign design of our Lord who created them. Male and female. And the two shall become one flesh. So, another way that our love works out practically, outworking within the family of faith, is that our conduct, verse 5, would be without covetousness. I had to do a little English project today and figure out what the opposite of covet is. It's uncovet, okay? So. Or unenvy, all right? Let your conduct be with unenvy. Be content with such things as you have. Did you hear that? I didn't. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Covetousness is a sin that's hard to detect because it resides on the inside. It goes on in here. And it'll eventually work its way out in you either stealing something or buying something you can't afford or, you know, but, but it begins here. It's a lot different than thou shall not murder. You know, you're like, oh, what do I do? Okay. And then Jesus later on will say, that actually begins here too with hatred in your heart and angry, being angry with your brother. But covetousness, it's that one thing in the law that it's inside. And Paul says, I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law said, thou shalt not covet. And if you'll flip over to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke 12, 13. A person in the crowd said to Jesus, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. 
So this guy wants what he thinks should be his. Divide the inheritance with me. Hey, take heed. Beware of covetousness. And man, this is, a, this is for America today, isn't it? One's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Man, with eBay and Amazon.com and Craigslist, and man, it's just like, what can I buy next? Gotta have this, gotta have that, gotta have this. And the guy's driving down the street in that truck. I gotta have that. He's got that in the back of his truck. I gotta have that. Got that person riding with him in the seat of his truck. I gotta have that. I gotta have this. I gotta have that. Hey, your life isn't about how much stuff you've got. And then he spoke a parable, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, Self, what shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, drink, eat, and be merry. But God said to them, Fool! This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you've provided? Now, here's the thing. Is it bad to, like, man, I'm going to have such a crop. Where am I going to put my grain? You jerk. How could you build a bigger granary? Now, the problem was, Jesus says, this guy was laying up treasures for himself and was not rich toward God. A little convicted tonight, Adam? Need another granary? First Timothy chapter six, verse six tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world and it is certain we will carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money. It's the love of money, the desire to be rich. That's the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then it goes on to say, he himself said, this is in Hebrews 13 verse 5. He himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Instead of getting so covetous about stuff, I got to have stuff and more stuff. Hey, what's the counter to that? Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. In other words, he's enough. Verse six, so now we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is confidence actually realized so that we can boldly and confidently say, God's my helper. Man can't do anything to me. He's my keeper. He takes care of me. And then verse seven, remember, here we go again. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Now the word remember here means so that you can imitate them. Remember the people who've ruled over you or who lead you in a way that is speaking the word of God to you. It's, it's talking about our spiritual leaders and not just, you know, the main teaching pastor of the church, but those home group leaders, those core leaders, the children's ministry leaders, they're teaching the word and follow their faith, considering the outcome of their conduct. A verse for me that has just always been on my heart is from 2 Timothy 3.14. It says, 
consider and continue on in the things that you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. I think of my mentors in my life, Ken Odegaard and Rob Verdine, men that, uh, you know, I've, I've watched, I've seen them, I've seen them in the tough times, I've seen them in the good times, and I know who I've learned these things from. Language speaks of diligently contemplating their conduct. Maybe your version says their end or their martyrdom. Thinking about how they've laid down their life for the faith. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now at first read, does that seem like a little bit out of place? You know, oh yeah, remember those people who rule over you and lead you spiritually. They preach the word. Hey, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like, that's a little different. What it's speaking of here is the leadership model to follow. Jesus is the leader who will never change. His phone is never busy. You can go to him. You can hear from him. He's the chief shepherd we're going to see later on in this chapter. It's good to ponder because the leaders, the pastors, we are going to fail you. Just get that. We're not the Christ, okay? We're not going to answer the phone that one moment you needed it, you know? We'll call you back, but it might not be in your time frame. And so who do you go to? Go to Jesus. Go to the Christ. That's who we want to point you to. Go to the Christ. He never changes. And you know what? There's a lot of leaders. They're going to change. One of my mentors that I was going to list, a radical, spirit-empowered preacher of the gospel, one of my main mentors, left his wife and kids, right? Would not repent of his sin. And some seven, eight years goes by. He finally repented. I never thought I'd see him again. God did a great work. God's working in him now. But sadly, that happened. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another one of my mentors went to prison for a sexual crime. For six years, he spent in the state penitentiary. This is, this is this guy, man. This is like Paul the Apostle. Hey, Jesus Christ, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. Verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrine, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. You know, many of these doctrines that will tend to draw us away, they are counter the gospel of grace. The book of Galatians says that you follow those, man, you'd be bewitched. You've been deceived. Man, let your heart be established by grace not with foods that profit those who've been occupied with them. Don't go after these new doctrines that prompt you and move you towards works-based salvation. By the way, if there's something that comes up and it's new, then it's not true. Okay, it's just a good sign for you. Next book that comes out, bestseller, next TV evangelist guy, it's got this new great thing, it's not true. All right, we've got the scriptures here where we can be established in doctrine rather than being carried away getting a firm foundation in doctrine verse 10 we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp 
And so as these Messianic Christians were being ostracized from their Jewish community, they were worried because they weren't able to be part of the worship ceremony. But the author tells them, hey, don't worry about that because we've got an altar that the men who are actually in the temple right now, they've got no right to eat of it. And what is the, the salvific sacrifice that's been offered for us? It tells us in verse 12 that it's Jesus. Jesus also, therefore Jesus, that he might sanctify and set apart the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. A prophecy fulfilled, the anti-type fulfilling the type. The man who sacrificed himself was taken outside that northern gate in Jerusalem to a hill called Golgotha or Calvary or the place of the skull, and he was sacrificed. Just like all the lambs were, so was he. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing the reproach. When you become a Christian, you take part of Christ in such an intimate way that you bear the reproach. 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So go to the north of the city, go to Mount Calvary and bear the reproach of Christ. Verse 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we see the one to come, that new Jerusalem that's made without man's hands. Verse 15, therefore, therefore, in knowing that Jesus died, he suffered at Mount Calvary, he was the sacrifice for our sins outside the city walls. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, in living out love in the family of faith, we have a few spiritual duties, okay? <clears throat> our first spiritual duty out of three is a respect to God, a fear of God, a heart that would worship God because of what he's done in sacrificing himself outside the city it's by him, and you might underline that, it's by Jesus that we continually offer sacrifices to God, fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. What is the sacrifice that we give? It's not bulls and goats, it's our bodies. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says that we would offer up our bodies as living sacrifice. It's our reasonable act of worship. That's a reasonable thing to, to be asked. Jesus gave himself up. What does he ask of us? To lay down our whole body on the altar of worship. Every bit of us. Head and shoulder, knees and toes, eyes and ears and mouth and nose. Worshiping God. Instruments to make much of his name. The psalmist says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. My lips shall praise you. Seven times a day, he says, I praise you because of your righteous judgments. We offer the sacrifices of our lips, Hosea says. C.T. Studd, who was a stud, he was one of the Cambridge Seven. He was a polo player. And among the other, uh, or cricket, excuse me, the cricket player, and among him and seven other of these champion cricket players, instead of going on and being famous and making millions of dollars, he was also independent, or he was wealthy through his family. 
Uh, He gave all of that up for mission work along with the Cambridge Seven. And he said this when asked, why are you foolishly giving away all of your money to the missions work and the Salvation Army? He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I ever make for him could ever be too great. When you look at what Jesus has done for us, all of me is all he asks, and that's not too much. And how often should this fruit of our lips be coming off? How often? Continually. Praise God, praise God. I was down in Klamath Falls this weekend, and after the conference, people were like, so good to meet you, so good to meet you, thanks to meet you. I'm like, praise God, praise God, praise God. I'm like, why am I praising God so much? I just got to praise God, praise God, praise God. People are like, nice to meet you. And I didn't say nice to meet you. I said, praise God, praise God, praise God. Quit saying praise God. Think of something else. Gloria en el Shalstis Deo. Okay? Praise God. Let that be coming the fruit of your lips. Matthew Henry said, Thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. As John says, my little children, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. With not only the fruit of our lips, but the fruit of our lives. Verse 16, and here's the fruit of our lives. But do not forget, there you go again, remember, don't forget, you're always forgetting, don't forget. Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. When we're distributing to the needs of the saints and we're given to hospitality, God is well pleased. The Philippians, they are from Macedonia, they were givers, man, to the core. Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 speak of their indescribable gift in light of Jesus' indescribable gift. And it says that those Philippians in chapter 4, verse uh, 15, it says, No other church shared like the Philippian church. They gave and they received. They sent aid again for his necessities for Paul's. And he goes on to say that that gift, financial gift, was a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Next time you go out of church tonight, smell Dylan's. And smell Barney Prines. Man, when we're fasting, it's like, man, they pumped up the scent factor on that like a thousand times over here. But go out there, and it's just like, oh, that smells good. And that's what the Lord considers. When we're giving, when we're generous, when we're sharing, that worship is just like, yeah, that's good. That we'd be willing to share. Which moves us to not only our respect to God, but our moral duty in respect to men. At the end of the age, after the tribulation, Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left hand. And these are people, by the way. And the people that were kind and generous and they shared, they visited those in prison, they gave the cup of cold water, they, they shared, they were generous. He says, man, enter in. Enter into the joy. But to those who were selfish, Selfish with their finances, selfish with their resources, selfish with their time. He sends them to the lake of fire. Why? Because a generous individual in Christ is a reflection of the one they've been saved by. But a stingy person shows that they've never truly known their Savior. They've never meditated upon their Savior. The fruit of their life isn't generous because they don't know their generous Savior. Share, Jesus says. Share in the sufferings of Christ, Paul says. 
Don't share in other people's sins, Paul says. Verse 17, 10 more minutes, okay? 10 more minutes, everyone. Get your 10-minute gear on, okay? 8 o'clock. That's nine minutes. Okay. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Now, this isn't a random statement. In, chapter, in verse 7, he encourages a, a remembrance and, and a following of the leaders, those who give the word of God. Verse 17, we see it. Verse 24, we see it. Remembering those who rule over you. There's a remembrance. There's a submission. You know, as a kid, we played following the leader. But as adults, it's a lot harder. Cynicism often clouds what God has called us to do, but we're called to obey our leadership. Those who rule over you. Now, this obedience is within the scope of authority that we've been given in the word. The word of God. You're not to obey the leaders if they're leading you outside of the scriptures. The pastors, the shepherds, the bishops, the overseer. It's a, it's a context of leadership. Strong language is used like ruling. But we see in 1 Peter chapter 5 that the ruling of the shepherds over the flock is not to be for dishonest gain, but it's to be done eagerly. It's not to be done by compulsion, but willingly. And this ruling is not to be, doing, to be done as lords over people, okay? As lords, but rather, it says in 1 Peter 3, but rather as examples to the flock. It's Jesus' leadership. It's servant leadership. And then it goes on to say the younger people should submit themselves to the elders, to the overseers, to the bishops, to the shepherds, to the pastor. It's a word interchanged in Scripture. And then let, let all of you be subject and submissive to one another, being clothed with humility. And so now we have within our family of faith love worked out in our ecclesiastical duty. Our respect to church leaders. We see here in the text, a leader watches out for your soul. Okay? Praise God, he's put people over you to watch out for your soul. It speaks of a military type of watch. Guards that have set to watch and protect. It speaks of a shepherd watch. These leaders have accountability. They're accountable to the Lord. There's a reckoning day in heaven, which is an awesome thought for everyone in leadership. That every word, every counsel, every correction, every vision of faith, every path walked will be reckoned at the counsel of God. And that's why James says in chapter 3, verse 1, don't let many of you become teachers. It's tireless work we see. Let them do so. This is to you, okay? If you could listen up tonight, that'd be awesome. No, I'm kidding. Let them, let the leaders lead with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I'll tell you, man, when we're serving with joy, it's like, you know, and we're, it's even more, sorry, it's even more like, man, this is just, it makes it easier to just get down and serve at leadership. But when there's grief and when the sheep bite, man, it's actually bad for you. We watch out for you. We pray for you. What are those prayers supposed to sound like? Oh God, you know that this person, man, the anger emails and the, the, you know, the lashings out and the physical altercations that happens in ministry. 
the threats, the death threats. Good friend of mine has had many death threats on his life in the ministry. Had, had a heart stapled to his door once. An, an animal heart, <laughs> I think. Members of the church have the potential to make their leaders glad or to make their leaders groan. And one man said the repeated call to submission to leaders, verse 7, verse 17, verse 24, it wars against the tendency to self-assertion, to bogus independence, a tendency which is not only prevalent in the first century, but in the 21st century as well. People who want the benefits of fellowship, but don't want the commitments. People who want to take, but don't want to give. People who want to absorb, but don't want to be faithful. People who want to be loyal to whatever point loyalty fits, and to be disloyal when it doesn't. There is no place for that in the fellowship of God's people. None whatsoever. So let's call each other out on it. The leadership will do that. Now, this obedience is not teaching blind obedience, nor is it talking about Nicolaitan-style leadership. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitan, which is the word Nike, like shoes, <laughs> means victory or to rule, and laity over the people. To rule over the people. You can't go on vacation without the... You know, the clergy telling you you can. You can't buy a house without the clergy giving you permission. You can't get married without permission. So this isn't teaching blind obedience, but in accordance to the word of God. And it'll bring progress in our fellowship. How do you encourage your pastors and your leaders? Verse 18 says, pray for us. I think it was Frank and Loretta last week. Rory and Chad, we pray for you Every morning by name. And I just said, I believe you. There's no doubt in my mind. Pray for us every morning by name. Pray for your core group leader. They are under attack and there's a lot on their shoulders as well. Paul says in Ephesians, pray that there might be an open door for me to preach the mystery of the gospel. Verse 19 says, but I especially urge you, did I even read the rest of that? Verse 18, pray for us, for we are confident we have a good conscience, all things desiring to live honorably. Paul would say in Acts chapter 20 and later on in 2 Timothy, they were confident because they'd preached the whole counsel of the word of God. Verse 19, but I especially urge you to this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Worship team, you want to come on up? I hear the sigh of relief out there. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't say amen yet because he actually goes on for another couple of verses, okay? <laughs> Classic Pauline fashion. But who's the shepherd of the sheep? Rory Rogers. Nope, not even close. The chief shepherd of the sheep is Jesus Christ. And those who are bishops are under shepherds. We're under pastored. He is the senior pastor of the church. And everyone else, man, we yield to him. He's the great shepherd. And we want that great shepherd to make us complete in every work to do his will. And so that is where we 
are moving on after this season of the book of Hebrews to do a season where we are equipping our leaders to lead so that we could train up faithful men to train up faithful men to train up faithful men. That these people could be complete in every good work to do his will, that they could now go in every good work to do his will within our local church. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 17 say. It says that God has given pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And we're excited for this season so that we might grow up in all things doctrinally right in this church. And that we might then go out and share the gospel in this community. Verse 22, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the words of exhortation, for I've written to you in few words. Yeah, right. (laughs) 13 chapters ain't few words, Paul. Verse 23, Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you, And all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And that's the book of Hebrews. Let's stand. Had one cheer there. It was super encouraging. Lord Jesus, you are better. You are better than the prophets. You are better than the angels because you created the angels and you became a man and you know by experience what it is to suffer, to be rejected, to be murdered, to be betrayed. Because of that, you're ready help in time of need. You're better than Moses who is so great, but Lord, you're infinitely greater. You created Moses As Moses was a faithful servant in the house, you're the son over the whole house that was faithful in all things. Lord, you're a greater high priest. And you're not even from the loins of Aaron, but God, you're from the order of Melchizedek. And Aaron paid tithes to you through the loins of Abraham because you're better Lord, as a high priest, you minister in a better tabernacle, not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. You minister for a greater and longer length of time, not once a year, but you ever live to make intercession for us. Not for 50 years until you die, but Lord, you've been ministering there for 2,000 years praying for us, ever living to pray for us and to minister for us. The blood that you use in the Holy of Holies isn't this cheap, perishable blood of bulls and goats, but it's the precious, spotless blood of Jesus, your own blood, high priest. The covenant that you minister is better, and it's not based upon our works and how much we can do, but it's based upon what you did. And that covenant that you minister, Lord, it was also sealed with blood, your blood. And Lord, has there been many warnings in this book? Warnings against drawing away, drifting away, neglecting so great a salvation, 
continuing on in sin willfully, after we've come to the knowledge of the truth, there's a warning against considering the blood of Jesus as just a common thing and we trample it under our foot and just keep on sinning. Lord, that those people aren't really saved. And Lord, we've just had many sober warnings, God. I pray you continually take us back to that, to say, get away from the cliff, guys. Get away from the cliff. You could fall off the cliff, get away from the cliff. And so, Lord, we come afresh tonight at the end of this series. And we just say, you are better, Jesus. You're better than anything in this world that would woo us or draw us. Any beautiful person, any eloquent individual, any stunning visual things, Lord. Lord, you are stunning. You're the best. And we continue on in faith tonight, just like those men and women of old, that they might not be made perfect apart from us, Lord. We want to be part of the action, living lives of faith in who you are, God. We want to run the race with endurance. We want to lay aside the weights and the sin that so easily ensnares. And we want to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we want to receive correction from a loving father that proves that we're not illegitimate children, but that we have a father. Lord, correct us. Keep us on the right path. And Lord, work out love in us, in our family life. Let us do it now. Let us love one another with Philadelphia. Let us remember the saints that are being imprisoned, Lord. Let us be hospitable. Let us share. Let us be generous. Lord, in light of you dying outside the camp, Lord, let us have praise just always coming from our lips, Lord. Lord, let us have that responsibility to each other. And Lord, let us submit to the the people that it says you appointed to rule this church. We pray for the leaders of this church, God, that they wouldn't be heavy-handed, that they wouldn't be dictatorial, God, that they wouldn't be Nicolaitans, but Lord, they would lead by example, servant leadership, laying their life down for the flock, washing the feet, Lord, work out submission to that type of leadership by the power of your spirit. Jesus, you're better. Let's sing one last song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.